VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we'll look back at the weekend that was in international football. Victory for England over Switzerland with some new faces included. Gareth Bale is an old face and he keeps that form going. But is he the greatest British player of the last 40 years? We'll also talk about his comments on responsible journalism. Should there be a UK team at the Olympics? We'll have the latest on the Chelsea bidders. We'll also talk Roberto Mancini. This is The Game. Hello, welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Tom Roddy, Tom Clark, and the one and only Tony Cascarino. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Loads for us to discuss. We're going to start with events at Wembley, where England beat Switzerland 2-1. It was a friendly match, of course, and they had to come from behind, thanks to goals from Luke Shaw and a Harry Kane penalty as well. Wasn't exactly vintage England, you got to say. Switzerland gifted them the goals in many ways, but it was far from a vintage starting eleven for England either. Very inexperienced. Experienced. You saw debuts for Carl Walker-Peters, Mark Gurhey and Tyrick Mitchell. And the likes of Conor Gallagher and Ben White also started the game. So it had that feel of players trying to impress upon the manager, Gareth Southgate, that they should be included in his squad for the World Cup later on this year. Southgate saying himself, though, that he wants all of their matches in 2022 to be like competitive games for that World Cup. Is that the best way to prepare? I guess is my first question, because I saw that and I thought, should you bill it as something so serious so early in the year? What do you think, Tony? No, it shouldn't be that serious. I mean, look, there are it's a lot more importance on players that are given the opportunity to play. And within that, you've got different formation you had in the first half to the second half, personnel that hadn't played together. Um, so it was quite a complex sort of scenario for England and Gareth. Do you really need to be that brilliant sort of six months before a tournament? No, you need to have ideas about who you see, what they're capable of, not only in the match, but in the training preparation before the game so don't take it too seriously who's going to think about Switzerland at Wembley six months down the line honestly nobody they're not going to think about that result what they showed Switzerland are a decent team you know we saw that we see them that in their their qualifying campaign they've been a decent side for probably three or four years now and I think that was a challenge for Gareth to get a team to get a result and not necessarily deserved it I thought they showed some good things especially early on in the game but not very well structured I think he was the three at the back didn't really work he changed it around I thought Colin Gallagher in the first half showed signs of what he's capable of um, but honestly the result is not that much of an importance and um, 
with performance and everything around that, mm. uh, I wouldn't be too concerned about. It's interesting, though, because Gareth Southgate actually stressed the importance of the result, given their performance wasn't that fluid. It was almost like, well, it was a bit like a competition in that, you know, we didn't play that well, but we got it done. We won the game in the end. We fought it out. And I thought this window was going to be all about young players sort of, you know, impressing on the manager that they should be included in, in his thoughts going forward. How do you see it, Tom Roddy? Is it is it more about just casting an eye over new talent or is there a big pressure on the manager to start showing that they're going to be winning games? A bit of both, really. And I think on the competitive game side, I think his point is more if you're going to play an international friendly, then play against a side like Switzerland, who are, I think, 14th in the world can cause problems at both ends of the field that's the main point really so you're not it's it's not a, a day out that's going to uh, bore people you hope um <laughs> even if it did for some um and and it's going to prepare you in the long run the, the thing is you've got to semi-final of the world cup four years ago the final of the euros whatever's happening whatever's happened before in the preparations before has been working so mm. there's no need to change things drastically one one thing as well is he might, I think he's at 100 players now that he's used since he became England manager and it was interesting because after the game he said I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing so <laughs> your point about casting an eye over new talent different talent and, and we sort of get the likes of Conor Gallagher coming in now and thinking well could he is it is it too late to make the world cup and um it, maybe it is a little bit like that uh that you you're getting to a period where you're not sure it, it, it maybe needs to be slightly more settled at this point I'm not, I'm not sure about it but i do think switzerland and ivory coast coming up next yeah. they almost you know it almost feels like the two warm-up games before a tournament doesn't it because you've got that juxtaposition of location and styles as well and i'm sure we'll talk about the game against ivory coast but tom clark on the sort of younger players in the squad i think we should focus in on the mark gahey um, Connor Gallagher, Ben White as well. Let's talk about Gerhi first, though. The Crystal Palace centre-back making his debut. I think he did offer something different, in particular with his feet. Yeah, and I think we discussed it um, on the preview show, didn't we? Talking about how if there was a big match coming up tomorrow, Gareth Southgate, like lots of the positions in the team, which is why this conversation about who impresses is quite difficult, because ultimately England have a very strong squad and strong starting eleven. But we talked about the idea that if you're going to not pick Harry Maguire, you might as well pick someone with different attributes. And as you say, Gabe showed that. And I think of the three, he was probably the brightest in the sense of a, a long-term sense. Because that's the other thing about players you know, playing for England at the minute and getting their first starts. There's a sense of, well, are you going to be a potential starter in the next five years, at the, at the next Euros, at the, at the World Cup in uh two sessions time and I think for him in that respect that's one of the more bright bright sparks because say to contrast Conor Gallagher I think he did okay but I think some of the players he's got in front of him you know Declan Rice is going to be an England central midfielder for the next eight ten years Jude Bellingham as well you would have thought so for him it's slightly different whereas for Gay you're looking at that centre-back position and going there's an opportunity here, not just because of Harry Maguire's poor form, but because Maguire and Stones are a little bit older. So I think, yeah, he was probably the brightest um, of those three that you mentioned for me. What do you think, Tony? Let's look at Gahey as a player. He reminds me a lot of Sol Campbell. 
Um, obviously, he can recover with his pace. He's very comfortable on the ball. Um, you don't need, especially in international football, you're not going to come up against too many centre forwards that are dominant in the air. So now he's he's very comfortable coming up against a one that probably won't be a giant six foot two, I know, or six foot three forward because it doesn't happen that often. There are international players who are who tick that box, but I I think he's shown already from his Palace performances, and even when I saw him at Swansea. You know, Chelsea had a big asset in Gaye as a player and they prepared to let him go. Now, I think he'll be one of them they'll regret further down the line, saying that, you know, yes, he's gone to Palace and we agreed a fee. I think he'll shine. I think he's very, very composed as well, which is a big plus. If you're composed as a player and you get the, the time, is which you will get, because England will dominate the ball more often than not against most international teams. Not all of them, but mm. most of them. So him on the ball being better than Harry Maguire, which I think he's already, we already know that, that he's far more comfortable with having it, moving it, keeping it, not taking too many risks. I think it's a big thumbs up for him. So long term, I do think he'll make a big impact within with England for Gareth. I wanted to talk about someone else that played in central defence, Ben White. For a long time, I don't know, it's felt like he was building towards becoming an England regular. You know, he had great plaudits at Brighton. He gets the £50 million move to Arsenal. Arsenal are playing well at the moment. He's in the starting team. You know, you, you mentioned Harry Maguire, his form's going off a cliff and you think, God, there's a, there's a spot there in central defence for England. If someone just grasps it, could Ben White be that player? And he didn't grasp it, I don't think, this, this in this game in particular. What did you make of his performance, Tom? I think what he did possibly grasp is the 10th in line for right back, actually, because he, was, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he probably had a better second half when they moved the formation to 4-3-3 and he was, he was in right back. I mean, I don't know, Hugh, I... I I was looking forward to uh, Mark Gurhey's performance more. I, f I felt like he is possibly a more natural, long-term suc suc uh, successor to uh, Maguire or even replacement for Maguire. Um, I think he he he's just that slightly more assured. I mm -hmm. think Ben White's Ben White's very good on the ball. I think he had a he had a good start. Um, his distribution from the back, but I just under pressure I'm still not convinced by him one thing one point do have to make with all of this and you you obviously you have to make take your opportunities but you have to give Ben White a little bit of slack and you also have to credit Mark Gurhey even more because they're playing in a it's back three but a, but a total of a back five defenders four of which don't really play for England ever you know Luke Shaw is is the regular the rest aren't so they're mm. coming into a side that don't play regularly together at all a lot of pressure on an opportunity in a World Cup year so that has to be taken into context as well yeah I think the marking for the goal was pretty bad mm, it was yeah and it is a question mark I think of Ben White that he's not necessarily the leader in a defensive line I think Gabriel for Arsenal's taken the plaudits in that regard and of course people do question his size for a centre back I don't think he's small Ben White at all no I think he could have dealt with that situation had his marking been better I don't think that was a factor Hugh on that would you you have to really think about this sometimes with footballers if someone makes a mistake and he clearly did for the goal he gets mm. caught you know Mbolo gets 
half a yard on him, sneaks in behind him and he gets caught flat-footed slightly and his ball's in behind him before he you knows it's in the back of the net. But I think the one thing I would say is that you've got to be very careful if someone makes a mistake and then that's not good enough. You know, you're, I think if you're a continual, you know, mm. error-based centre-half, like a goalkeeper, if you continue to make uh, mistakes and people mm. say, look, you can't keep doing this. I've seen him a lot Arsenal this year and he's made very few mistakes. Mm. What I was going to say about him is, and this was this was my overarching point, I think that th- those, and, and there are very few of them, but those mistakes or those moments mm. that he seems a bit shaky, because at times you you feel like the word erratic could be used about Ben White. It's not, know, maybe that's a bit strong, but not, certainly not as calm or assured mm-hmm. as someone like Gerhi, is that had he been playing in the Europa League this year, and I think he might be playing in the Champions League next year, I, I think that will help him massively. I know that people say the Premier League's this, that and the other, but it is a particular type of football which I think he can deal with in the Premier League. And I'm, I think he's gonna, I think he's one of those players who will learn very quickly. And Mbolo is someone who plays in the Champions League, gone up against the best defenders in the world. And I think playing against the best forwards in the world, and I know, again, some of those are in the Premier League, but that difference of style will help him massively. Yeah. So I'm, 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 I think he will take a leap before the World Cup up if they reach the Champions League. I was at the playoff final um, when Brentford played Swansea and Gurhi had a real runaround by Ivan Tony. Mm. I mean, he literally, six foot three, dominated him in every area. Now, going back to what I said, I don't think that's as important in international football because you don't get too many types of Ivan Tony sort of structure, you know, or stature. Uh, because that ultimately, I came back that down for all. But then you have to think, well, when you go to the Premier League, you know, you have certain players that are going to be a threat physically, but not that many. Chris Wood, for example, might do better against Gay than another type of stri- uh, striker. He's probably more comfortable up against someone where he can dominate. Because I see him do it a lot for Palace this year. Mm. Who would you have preferred play against, Gurhi or White? I've always said I played against Tony Adams, Martin Keown, David O'Leary, Steve Bold and Andy Linegan. Who did I hate playing against? Andy Linegan. I never got a kick. And I can give you another one I played against and I really, uh, I'd done okay against him a few times and quite enjoyed it, was Sol Campbell. Now, Sol Campbell didn't have to play up against someone as big as me very often. And Sol was a fantastic athlete and a hell of a player. But I actually, if you said to me, who would I rather play against? I would name a lot more. I would have said Tony Adams, Martin Keown, and a good few others. Andy Linegan, I was. I remember being in the dressing room, he's in the lineup. Oh, no. Linegan, I played against him at Oldham, never got a kick. Played against him at Norwich, never got a kick. Then he was at Arsenal, and I dreaded him being in the lineup. What was the difference? Andy Linegan was very much, even probably an inch bigger than me, very quick for someone of six foot four, and just a straight up and downer. And that, and you know, there are players that hate playing against a certain type mm. that you, that you just don't like playing against them, and they don't have to be. You know, you, they could be a far lesser player. You know, Andy Lindigan wasn't nowhere near as good as Keown, O'Leary, Adams, but against me, I hated it. Mm. So you do have that in football sometimes. And you said mentioned Ben White and there and Gay as two centre halves. But if you had said to me someone of uh, you know even now, Mary, maybe Harry Maguire. You know, I would have probably gone more Harry, six foot five and quite dominant. I probably wouldn't have enjoyed that so much. So sometimes styles play a part. Let's talk about the midfield. I'm delighted by this. Over the last sort of 18 months, two years, you know, being in, in our age group, Tony, um, <laughs> you know, we very much grew in in the years of Lampard 
um, Skulls and Gerrard and the arguments over who should be in central midfield for England and, and choice between, you know, three of the great central midfield players of, of English football. You know, that was the great pub argument for many a year. And we haven't had that in the central midfield area. But I feel like the emergence of Jude Bellingham, yeah. Connor Gallagher, who played at the weekend, Declan Rice, who's going to go on to even greater things soon. And we might have a truly elite central midfield area. Calvin Phillips. Calvin mm. Phillips. I mean, there are others. Yeah, there are absolutely mm. others. Um, but th those, you know, those the improvements of Rice plus the emergence of the other two, I think could be huge for England. So Connor Gallagher, Tony, I'll start with you on this. What does he offer an England side that maybe the other... And, that you know, there's James Ward-Prowse who can play in there. Yeah. We've got Mason Mount already. Phil Foden can play in the central midfield area. So could Jack Grealish. We've got Jordan Henderson who started at the weekend as well. He's towards the tail end of his England career, but still more to offer. Yeah. What does Conor Gallagher offer this squad that maybe the others don't? Well, you've already alluded to it. It's something different. And it's a goal-scoring midfielder. Now, if you look at the Premier League, the top goal-scoring midfielder at the moment is Kevin De Bruyne, who plays in many different positions. But there hasn't been a goal scorer in my opinion I think Connor is capable of getting 15 Premier League goals a season regularly now you can play a two you could play like you said Bellingham or Phillips and Rice in a two whatever, for, whatever ones you want to select and have him just behind Harry Kane because he is fantastic at arriving like Lampard he's got the same traits as Lampard arriving late and sometimes Harry drops deep he runs beyond and he does that brilliantly as well so I think he offers something different if Gareth feels he has to change the formation because Conor Gallagher is the only one I'd want to go to to offer a threat from midfield as in goals and I think that for me is a big standout feature of his game he probably won't start because I don't think Gareth will go that way in games but if there's ever a reason for Gareth to go right let's change our formation the game's not going how we want it to Let's put Gallagher in there in front of the two midfielders who are very good at winning the ball and keeping the ball, but have someone have the freedom to make runs. Mm. Connor Gallagher is your man. He can also, I think, turn a game that you're not excelling in for England because he can win the ball high up the field. He's very much a disruptor. You know, he can yeah. be an annoyance. And the thing that Gareth Southgate pointed out after the game was he doesn't just win it and give it. Once he wins it back, he's he gives gone. it and he goes. Yeah. And he's trying to put pressure. You know, he, he, he understands that the defence might be scrambling and he's trying to find a gap. He's trying to pick a hole. He's trying to make that forward burst. Well, he's got two challenges, Hugh. One of them's to get in... Over, if he goes back to Chelsea... Is Thomas Tuchel going to use him? Because he's got to get in the first team at Chelsea to have a chance of going to the World Cup. And obviously, if they send him out on loan again, which is still another poss possibility, but he's got two obstacles. If he's going to get in the England squad, is one of them getting back to Chelsea and being a regular. And the second problem is if he doesn't go to Chelsea, wh where does he go next season? Will it be Palace again? And get goals. Because I think Gareth, but select him, is already thinking of something different in his, in his squad. And he gives that. Yeah, absolutely. Tom? He he's that um he's the complete midfielder really in terms of uh in terms of both sides of the game. I mean Tony was just talking about his his attacking qualities and when he was on loan at, at Swansea in 2019-20 they used to have at the training ground just uh, just by the boot room they had um, on the wall this list of how who'd run the furthest who'd run the fastest in training that week and every single week pretty much Conor Gallagher was at the top because he just runs and runs and runs and covers so much ground 
And that doesn't make you the best footballer in the world at all. No, it just doesn't. But at Chelsea, they already sort of see him as similar traits to Angola Conte. And mm. I mean, you can't go too far wrong when people are comparing you to him. Mo Salah does that as well, Tom, doesn't he? Mm. You know, like, Coutinho just runs and runs and runs and he keeps getting chances. Every time I watch Salah, I think, how does he get so many chances? Well, it's the, the work rate, it's, isn't it? It's his work rate mm. and continual running. Yeah, absolutely. Big future uh, for Conor Gallagher. Going to be interesting to see how much he's used in an England shirt because I think, again, if you give him that responsibility, if you bring him off the bench, four games in the Nations League in the summer as well, they're going to be important and competitive, if you like. Mm. Um as long as he stays fit, I think he's got a very, very good chance. And I should have mentioned, by the way, if those of us that watch the under-21s take on Andorra, and yes, it's Andorra, but Jacob Ramsey is coming as well. And yes, to keep an eye on him, uh, the Aston Villa midfielder, of course, who's made a great, great start under Steven Gerrard and under Dean Smith as well. Um, look, up next for England, it's Ivory Coast, as I mentioned. Elsewhere in terms of the home nation, so it could have been a huge game this week for Wales. Instead, they're going to have to wait until the summer to find out if they're going to make it to Qatar. Gareth Bale scoring two beautiful goals to send them into a World Cup playoff final in June, where they'll play either Scotland or Ukraine. Remember, that tie, of course, has been delayed until June. In a way, that's great for Wales because Aaron Ramsey and Gareth Bale don't have to have those two high-pressure games, high-energy games in the space of five days. They can now wait and prepare and hopefully they're both fit for that game in terms of Wales' hopes, of course, at the end of the season. But let's talk about Gareth Bale in particular. A lot of people having the argument after that match, and I think it's only right that we mention it. Is he the? I'm not going to say the, the greatest British player ever, but of the past 40 years... Is Gareth Bale the, the best British player we've seen? No, in my opinion. Who is it? Well, well I'm biased. I'd have Kenny Dalglish, um, most definitely, in front of... And, and a good few others. I would say Gareth is the greatest export from this country to go abroad and achieve what he did. I think it's been exceptional. I mean, you don't go to... How many players can you think of have lasted nine years? And his career has been... Incredible at Madrid, as in nine years, six of them were fantastic. The last three haven't been good. You know, it's just not this season for Gareth. I think he's got five for Wales this season and one for Real Madrid. And yes, he was on loan at Spurs last year and got a number of goals. Um, but in some ways, a little bit disappointing because we saw how good Gareth could be, a little bit like he was for Wales. He's been dreadful for three years at Madrid. And then I say that because people will say how much he's won. He did. He won a lot and was fantastic for six. And, and most definitely the best player from Britain to ever go abroad. You know, and that in itself is an amazing feat. But to put him on the, you know, the, the sort of top of the greatest British players ever, no, I think there's a good few that I could name off the top of my head that I would um, certainly from Liverpool, Arsenal to Chelsea players and, and Manchester United's teams who have been successful under Fergie, I'd put them ahead of Gareth. Tom Clark, is that harsh? Oh, it's so difficult with Gareth Bale because when you watch him, I was watching those goals and also so many of his goals in his career, he, play, he plays a bit like a computer game player on FIFA you know that free kick is like one of those ones where you put the little arrow in the top corner <laughs> on the old PlayStation games and you tap the button precisely at the exact moment and it goes exactly in the top corner and the same with the second goal that kind of spin and flick straight into the top corner it's, he's, he's a fantastic and remarkable player to watch in lots of ways and as Tony says because of those these last few years at Madrid you end up having a overarching debate about his status 
when he's such a gifted and brilliant player to watch. I, I must confess, I do slightly disagree with Tony and find myself going back to those early years, back to his goal-scoring record. I mean, even with the last um, couple of seasons, his record at Madrid overall, 81 in 175 games, that's still incredibly good. Yes, that's based on the earlier years, but you know, he's got four Champions League winner medals, two La Ligas. Uh, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary career. Um, I agree with Tony that I don't think he's one of the British greats, but I'd actually put him a little bit higher. I'd say he's definitely up there, not just for what he's done for Real Madrid, but also, I mean, Tony, you tell us, there's a flip to saying, oh, he's not been able to get fit. He's not been able to get into the Madrid team. Is there a not a you know, flip argument to say, well, actually, at the top level, to not have game time and then step up for Wales in a massive game like this and play and then score... That's pretty impressive. That shows a unique and remarkable talent, doesn't it? Oh, well, I... We all talk about, oh, you've got to be fit, you've got to be match fit, and actually he doesn't play for Madrid and then turns it on like that. That's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is, and the type of goals he get, gets is extraordinary, Tom. And look, I'm, I'm not trying to be clever here and say, you know, of course he's, his legacy in football is going to be extraordinary. Um, especially the the Champions League winners. I mean, look, Real Madrid win the Champions League quite often in comparison with most teams, don't they? Um, you know, so they're a, they're a side that are continually being successful over the history of the game. And he has played a massive part. Have you just said to me when he first signed, what was it, 2013 Madrid, that he would still be there in 22? I'd have said, well, that's never going to happen. You know, what export has ever done that at a football club abroad? I thought, on myself, I thought I'd done amazing the last six years in France. I mean, he's surpassed and by a country mile. You know, whatever I achieved by staying there, longevity in a, in a foreign country is a really big thing. Not, not many do. He's done that. Um, I'm always... Uh, maybe I'm wrong, Tom, on this because I've always thought there's more in Gareth Bell. And even with what he's achieved, I still think there's been, there, there was more. And sometimes I look at him and think, I don't think Gareth loves the game as much as he should do. And I think that's been evident over the last three years. He loves playing for Wales, but not much else. But isn't it fitness? Isn't Great it? Spot? Of course, he. But that's he's been what injured. Held him back. Yeah, well, he has held him back. I mean, I, I mean, he's sometimes Hugh, he's had a twisted sock, and he, you feel like he's not going to play. You know, um, again, maybe I'm being really harsh because I, I just think he's always put himself available for Wales. And he's left Madrid being injured and come over and then played for Wales. And, you know, why would... why Look, we're, we're, we're pretty... Um, sometimes we get a bit fickle in football. And imagine if you're a Gareth, well, Gareth Bale was playing for Man United, right? And he never was available, or especially in the last three years, hadn't turned up a lot. And then suddenly he went to Wales. Would everyone be going... Well, he keep, every time he goes to Wales, he's brilliant, and he comes back to us and he's not playing any part. And that's how Madrid fans are feeling with him. You know, it's not they're just against him. They they think, well, he, he keeps doing this when he goes away with Wales and when he comes back to us, he's not available. And when he is, he seems a little bit disinterested. Is that unfair? I think Tony is, is onto something there a little bit because what he what he benefits from this side is that is that generally fans in the UK don't watch Real Madrid week in, week out. So they see the highlights. They see the the great moments. If you ask Tottenham fans from the loan last year, how did, how did he get on? 
mixed mixed exactly and and what they would probably say is well he's a legend of the club you know it's it's that historical context they would bring into it because it was it was slightly underwhelming there weren't um it wasn't the consistency that they may have hoped for but it, I mean, I, I actually thought that moment, it's it summed up his career with Wales and it, it was a little bit, it's a little bit like the, the Beckham Greece free kick. Just amazing quality. Tottenham weren't in a big rush to take him back, were they? No, no. And I, I do, I, I think Gareth Bale is up there in terms of individual quality British players. So the longevity argument is, I guess, an aspect to it. You could bring in trophies if you like, um, individual awards too. But I think on his day, fit and firing, virtually unplayable. You're going to tell me Kenny Dalglish was the same. Well, no, I'm going to tell you there's many players on their day (laughs) that were impossible to play against because on your day is your very best. And Gareth Bale's very best is an extraordinary level. All right, I'll take it on the chin from Tony Cascarino. (laughs) A bit like Chris Rock. Um, Listen, (laughs) let's talk a little bit about what Gareth Bale had to say after that game um, because I think it was quite important and and maybe plays to the twisted sock narrative, Tony. Uh, Gareth Bale hitting out at Spanish newspaper Marca for what he called uh, slanderous, derogatory, and speculative journalism after he was called a parasite in the build-up to the game and after the great performance, Bale took to social media describing the Spanish press's reporting of him as disgusting um he said at a time where people are taking their own lives because of the callousness and relentlessness of the media i want to know who's holding these journalists and the news outlets that allow them to write articles like this accountable he then went on to say the media expects superhuman performances from professional athletes and they will be the first to celebrate with them when they deliver yet instead of commiserating with them when they show an ounce of human error they are torn to shreds instead encouraging anger and disappointment in their fans tom clark what did you think about what gareth bell had to say about journalism in particular ah yes the evil media at it again i I sympathize slightly with what he says because in his case particularly he has had some very pointed treatment should we say but i always do have a as i would because i'm completely biased in my job i do have an issue with the branding of the media as if we are some kind of outer otherworldly organization you know, we're not. The, the media in various different strands is a business. And a lot of the time, particularly newspapers, but also viewers, it is reflective of society and what viewers, readers want to read and watch. And so there, there's a there's a difficult balancing act to be struck between just pointing the finger at the media because you shouldn't just point the finger at the media. It's about a bigger question than that. But... I have to acknowledge that sometimes the media do go too far and that I think in Gareth Bale's case that that is absolutely right. I mean the marker the marker um situation is particularly uh, striking and I think for him personally he's obviously had a, a very difficult time. But that's but that's what I mean. I guess it's not just the media in Spain is it? it this is a, this is a particular incident but it's reflective of Madrid fans who've been particularly harsh at times um, and how he is viewed in you know Spanish society if you like and so that's my point is that I'm always then wary of the pointing of the oh it's the media the evil media when it's it's about something far bigger than that and the way in which we brand as you know Bales has had certain um, things attached to him that is also reflective of society in a whole as well and that we're not particularly great 
these days at not having incredibly impassioned and sometimes incredibly insulting opinions about people and that's that that's where i would say that he's right to raise the point about how we discuss people how we point the finger but it's not just the media's fault i would say yeah it's quite easy just point out the journalists who wrote that article and point out the newspaper that writ it or or had wrote that article and was okay to accept it because the words parasite is way too far there's a line in the sand on lots of things but if you're going to take it to a level of you know scum sort of journalism in my opinion i mean there's i joked about saying a twisted sock you know i mean but that's not calling him a parasite um we've just talked about ben white and his performance and the what he failed to do for the goal that england conceded at the weekend we have our right to talk about incidents of, of players. I, I never had a problem. I know I had some stick, by the way, as a player during my career. I never had a problem with it. As long as they didn't get personal and go too far. With that, you can only prove people wrong by crossing the white line and what you do on the pitch. Now, if someone goes personal on you, go for them. That was always my... I would say, if I play badly and you give me a bad rating and you said I didn't do this or that in the game, I had no problem with. And I'd never argued against that because that was an opinion. If it went too far, I would let someone know that I read it and I didn't like it and wouldn't let them get away with it. That's different. And I think you can do that to the media sometimes. You can point out... You know, point out the person that wrote the article of how bad that journalist is. I know, but do you know what happens now? Because there are so many opinions on the internet um, that if Gareth Bell was to say this journalist was wrong, that journalist then gets all the abuse that Gareth Bell is saying he's found difficult to cope with or other people have mm. found difficult to cope with. And there might be, I know it sounds weird, but he might be saying, look, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy in many ways. Mm. So if someone does write something negative about me, I would rather encourage positive journalism. But that's not negative, Hugh, is it? No, but, but, what, but way- he, kn- he knows what his fans, and there are many of them, will say about a journalist who said mm. something well, that he's not happy with. Consider that when you write the article. When you're going to use the words parasite, yeah. consider what... It was, it was what, a, what, so it was a cartoon, basically, yeah, where they mocked it, him up as a mosquito and uh, called him a parasite. But, you know, the bigger picture for Gareth, he came... You know, it's, for me, it's influenced a lot of people to think like that. And he he's not a parasite. Mm. And yes, his career in the last three years that I touched on has been on the downside to regards to Real Madrid. But there's a fine line. You know, you can't just aim... I mean, severe criticism, vulgar criticism yeah. at someone. That's way too far. Journalist Tom Roddy? <laughs> no, Tony's... Um, He's nervous. To- <laughs> it's clearing his throat. <laughs> what have you written, Tom? No. I'll, I'll back you, Tom. I'll back you, Tom. Don't, don't worry about don't it. Don't publish don't it, Tom. Don't publish it. <laughs> uh, um, no, no I, I, I agree with, with Tony. Um, and I also think that a lot of you know we we actually see in in spain a lot of it does go over the top and and you compared it tony to what we were talking about before with all the comparison and the contrast between ben white we were analyzing his performance this piece if you actually um read it it goes even further than than parasite and it's it's about his personality it's about his his traits as a human being that he's calling into question not whether he's whether he's prolific enough or clinical enough um one one point i kind of would make and is that this has been building for quite a while, hasn't it? And I think possibly on on Gareth Bale's side, and I think it's really important, is communication because 
the thing he was accused of for so many years he's been there a long long time and i believe uh, I, I believe he has has learned spanish over the years and understands it uh, but he doesn't communicate with them too much and hasn't done down the years and i think that's a massive thing I, i'd i'd compare it a little bit with the mezozil situation that he had at arsenal and he was receiving so much criticism so much criticism deservedly so because you had different managers who lost their patience with him. But I remember him doing an interview, I think it was 2019 possibly, reading the interview and understanding his side a little bit more. Mm. So maybe that would, would help a little bit. I'll tell you, can I just say one thing on this? You know, we talk about how bad it's been. Now, everybody was celebrating Gareth Bale in the UK about his brilliant two goals. What do you think the reaction is going to be in Madrid when he gets back? More anger, I would imagine. Yeah. More anger because yeah, yeah. he's done that for Wales yeah. and he's coming back to us, but he's not going to do it for us. Yeah. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll just see it as backing up yeah. the Wales Golf Madrid, won't they? Yeah. Given that it's International Week and we've seen the home nations in action, of course, you're a former Republic of Ireland international, so this might not affect you, but I am interested on your view on it nonetheless, Tony. Matthew Syed, not too long ago, writing in The Times that he believes a UK football team should exist and that individual home nations should be scrapped. This has caused, as you can imagine, some uh, uproar. Um, he says, Am I alone in regretting that history was not different, in wishing that football in this nation had started out much in the same way as the Olympics, in wishing that we could have drawn on all the talents of all our countrymen, that football was a source of shared pride rather than often bitter division and I, I need to play you this because i asked jonathan northcroft on the last podcast what his views were have a listen i hope he's alone oh my word please 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 and you know expunge this idea first of all you have to believe in the uk i'm going to put my cards on the table and i i you know i believe in scottish independence so of course i'm not going to say let's have a uk team i don't i don't necessarily believe there should be a uk anymore but but leaving that aside, uh, you know, leaving politics aside, the nations are so rich for having their own teams. Football has got a different history to Olympic individual sport, as does rugby, older histories. And Scotland, England's the first international. This is embedded in, 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 in the history of, of the game worldwide for you British GB, UK nations or whatever being founder members of FIFA, all that sort of stuff. It's just horrific. And, I, you know, I, I think basically just to give England Andy Robertson, use of Andy Robertson, you know, you, you, you sort of get these arguments from time to time from people down here, but there's nobody in Scotland to go for this. And I tend to agree with Jonathan, I have to say, <laughs> that it would be a bit of a disaster. But I do think we are missing an opportunity, which is why I wanted to put it to you three. I, I honestly believe that in the spirit of the Olympic Games... When in women's football, we do send a Team GB to play in the football competition, that we should be sending a, a, a Team GB to play in the men's football competition. This is, bear in mind, these these shores are the, the home of football, but that we should give these opportunities, I think, to a, a squad of players who we believe are unlikely to experience anything like it. So why not send a team of under-23s from the Football League or from non-league football? We've got a, ma a magic non-league um, pyramid if you like, in England and the other countries as well, even if it was just a team of players from the League of Wales and from outside the Scottish Premiership and teams in Northern Ireland and non-league in England, 
give them the opportunity of going and playing in front of that big crowd and maybe, you know, who knows, winning an Olympic medal when they're unlikely to win anything of major note elsewhere in their careers. I don't see why that would be such a bad thing, Tony. Well, you're diluting it completely there, Hugh. Why? Well, yeah, if you were sending an 11 that were Premier League-based or just generally the best players in Scotland, Wales and England... Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland as well. Mm-hmm. Well, the only player I can think on, and Jonathan touched on it, is going to be Andy Robertson that gets in the team. Otherwise, it's an England team. It's not a UK team. It's an England team plus one. And, you know, and that will be the generally the case... For well, time well, beyond. Well, you could well, unless say, you dilute it, yeah, yeah, like you, you suggested. You, you could say, right? Okay, everyone's got eight players, you know, or, or if you like. So England, you you call up eight. Scotland calls up eight. Wales calls up to eight, and Northern Ireland calls up eight. And you give it to the responsibilities to those football federations to call up their eight players. Bad idea. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not gonna. I'm not. I can't think of any other words, Hugh. But it's a bad idea. You want to it... dilute it to try and make it work. Well, Surely well, you want to. Sorry, we the don't have talent. a team at the moment, so we're not diluting it. I just want well, there you to would be a be side. Diluting it. I mean, I'm giving us a side where there is no side at the moment. <laughs> well, I can't think of any other words for a bad idea. For Tom, me. The, the prospect of it feels like a just an experiment to to a, to an extent, which I'd be fascinated to see, but doesn't always I doesn't mean I want to see it it doesn't mean it'll work it's one of those things where you go back over over recent history and you think it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if Gareth Bale in his prime had been playing with all these players Ryan Giggs in and that was partly where it comes from you know Ryan Giggs was was always the solution to England's left side problem but that's it it's it, that kind of sums it up because it's it's England's it's it's the England team plus one as as Tony said it, it's 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 almost patronizing to the other countries um and it will as one um as one uh, subscriber to the times commented it will unify all the other nations in deciding like Tony said it is a bad idea <laughs> can, can I just say something Hugh one of if you look at rugby and at the six nations and mm. and this was also common in football Everybody loved playing England. Like, Scotland loved playing England because they wanted to beat them badly because they didn't like the English. And that was across the case. That's the case for Wales, Northern Ireland, and certainly Republic of Ireland. And obviously, Republic aren't in this discussion. But generally, England were always looked down upon as in, we want to get one over England. You know, and, and that's the case. And I, I don't see that, like, uniting having a UK team. I don't think it's the same in football Guys, like it is in rugby. You, you, you're missing, and this is where football... I mean, football's exceptionalism sometimes. You know, are you telling me that people in Northern Ireland don't cheer on Team GB in other sports at the Olympic Games? Are you telling me that... Certainly it, not in football, Hugh. You, listen, are you, are you telling me that Scottish people do not cheer on Team GB at the Olympic Games, why suddenly, if they put a football at their feet instead of running track, uh, running spikes on a track, do we suddenly hate the idea of people from Scotland and Wales representing Team GB? I, I, uh, I, I look, don't get it. Football's very it. tribal. 
Yeah, remember that. Mm. You know, having a running track and a Team GB is totally different from having the world of football where tribalism is everywhere within football and the hatred and toxicity in football is extraordinary. So I I think it's a really bad idea that... I mean, I've tried to be fair. Maybe I've given everyone the same number of players and you still hate my idea. Tom Clark, final word from you. It's a tricky one. Matthew comes up with lots of interesting ways of looking at sport. This is one, one that I don't agree with him on. But also there's an interesting conversations to be had tom alluded it to it there i think part of what matthew was talking about was the idea of not having individual nations and having this kind of super team you know he referenced the ryan Giggs situation he referenced um the idea as tom said of having gareth bale but that enters a myriad of problems and people like johnny northcroft would never allow it to happen i think your idea hugh is a better one but still from a sports fan who absolutely loves the Olympics and a sports editor who absolutely loves the Olympics because it's the two weeks of the year that you don't talk about football. The last thing we need is a football team being part of it. And I agree with Tony's argument towards you that if you're going to do it, you might as well do it properly and don't kind of dilute it um, with with, uh, players from lower down the pyramid. Having said that, we ran a reader poll uh, on the website with this piece and I was fully expecting it to be, you know, 94% no, it's terrible. 57% of the times readers think it's a good idea. So what the hell do we know? And how many <laughs> how many times did Johnny press no, I wonder? <laughs> that's, the big, that's the big question. Uh, listen, it's not going to happen, but it was worth the conversation nonetheless. Uh, plenty still to come on the Game Podcast. But remember, if you're enjoying yourself, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So, as will probably become regular over the next few months, let's get an update on the bidding process for the new owners of Chelsea. We know what's happened. Roman Abramovich, their former owner, if you like, has been sanctioned by the UK government. The club is up for sale. There were names flying about in the media. There were so many rich people saying they wanted to buy Chelsea. And now we have a short list. Um, And it was decided at the end of last week. So let's speak to our sports correspondent, uh, Matt Lawton, who joins us now. Hi, Matt. Hi, Hugh. Where do we stand on who is buying Chelsea right now and who are the remaining names? So we've got four that we certainly that we know about uh, because the the Rain Group, which is this merchant bank um, uh, that is is leading this process for Roman Abramovich, uh, they don't actually, you know, they haven't issued a statement where they've, said these are the people on the shortlist but the four that we know about are the Todd Bowley group um, uh, the the, the guy that co-owns the LA Dodgers uh, and he has Jonathan Goldstein the uh, British property investor 
um, and a Swiss billionaire uh, hands you all this on his uh, consortium, part of his consortium, um, uh, and, and backed by Daniel Finkelstein, uh, who is a Times columnist. Um, then we have the Martin Broughton Group, so Martin Broughton Group, uh, we believe, I'm pretty certain now, that they are indeed backed by the two guys that have invested in Crystal Palace, Josh Harris and David Blitzer. Um, and they are supported by Lord Coe, uh, Seb Coe, World Athletics President, big Chelsea fan. Then we have uh, the one I know least about, the Boston Celtics owner, Stephen Pagliuca. He is, uh, he, he is apparently on the shortlist. And finally, we have the Ricketts family, the, the owners of the Chicago Cubs. Uh, they're backed by a guy called Ken Griffin, who is the single most wealthy, uh, the wealthiest person, um, I should phrase that better, the wealthiest person uh, involved in this whole process, worth more than 20 billion. So he's worth almost double what Roman Abramovich is worth. Uh, he's a rather rich man. I was actually talking to an MP last week who said to me, you haven't met a billionaire? And I said, yeah, I've, I've met a couple. He said, she said, they're very different. They're very different people. I said, yeah, they inhabit a world that none of us can comprehend in any way. <laughs> it's, uh, and the, the one I've met is Jim Ratcliffe. And, and yeah, it's it's very weird meeting a man who's worth £22 billion. Pounds. Is it, yeah, what do you do? Why do you even bother getting out of bed in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> Matt, on, on the... Uh, I was going to yeah, ask you, Matt, on that, that, you know, a month or so ago, we was all led to believe that Chelsea were, Chelsea were going to be on the, uh, be a steal, go on the cheap, maybe yeah. a billion less than their, their valuation of Roman Abramovich. But that's clearly yeah. not the case now. It's actually going to go to the bidders where we're going to go, Chelsea are going to probably even get a premium on the club. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, Tony, because it was, I remember, I've just mentioned Jim Ratcliffe and, um, I had this bizarre exchange with him a couple of years ago when he bought Team Sky, the cycling team, and they became Team Ineos. And I'd done a story a few years ago where I'd written that he had had a tour of Chelsea's training ground. And it was quite interesting because initially Chelsea denied it. Then we went back and said, no, 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 I'm telling you, this is right. We know it's right. And then the club sort of reconsidered their position and confirmed that, yes, he had had a tour of Chelsea's training ground. I then asked Jim Ratcliffe this at the launch of Team Ineos, and he denied it. He, he said, I don't know what you're talking about. This was during a press conference. I went up to him afterwards, and I said, you've just denied that you had a tour of the training ground. Sorry, this is a very long-winded way of answering this question. He said, you've just denied that you had a tour of the training ground. I know you had a tour of the training ground because the club confirmed you had a tour of the training ground. And he said, yeah, I was never going to admit that in a, in a press conference. Um, so anyway, but, but the point is about him, he balked at buying Chelsea when I think what he offered was in the region of two billion. And the reason he balked at that was because you spend your two billion. Bear in mind, I don't think any sports franchise has gone for more than three billion. He balked at that because you buy it for two billion and then you've got to spend at least a billion on the stadium. So it suddenly becomes very expensive. So I was talking to one of the key figures on one of the four groups last Friday. And I actually said, are you not all pay overpaying for this? Because I said, well, what, what do you think it's going to go for in the end? And they, and they said, I, I think between two and a half and 2.75 billion. 
I said, well, aren't you overpaying? Bearing in mind that you've then got to spend another billion on the stadium because it's it's a massive expense to stadium. Like we all thought it was bonkers spending seven hundred and fifty-seven million on Wembley, but the complication with Stamford Bridge is you've got a cemetery, you've got the tube station. It's it's a it's a civil engineering nightmare. Um, so so it's incredibly expensive. But their view was that once. If you know, if you maintain the success of the team, if they if they remain a Champions League force, if they continue to contest the Premier League title every season, their view was that once you have spent that money on the stadium, the club will be worth five, six, seven billion. So they see it as a good investment. Now they recognise that once you get in there, you've got to look at the business plan properly because. The guy I spoke to estimated that when you look at it, when you delve into the data, when you look at the books, Abramovich has been propping it up the whole time, the last 19 years. So whatever's whatever's going in and out with sale, you know, sale, sale of players and, and revenue, TV revenue, that every year on average, he's had to pump in another 75 million to keep the thing afloat. So in terms of running it as a business, it's got to be run more efficiently. But their view is, sorry, it's such a long answer, Tony, but their view is that that basically it is valued at the right level. There's a part of me that thinks that's almost worried at the number of people involved in property who had an interest of buying Chelsea. Um, and that maybe one day, well, one day soon, the new owners might think of relocating Stamford Bridge. In fact, that piece of property, and I know they don't own the, the pitch itself. Well, as I was to say, they can't they can't do it, Hugh, because because the, 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 it's it's quite clever what Bates did, what mm. Ken Bates did when he created the pitch owners, because he knew that when yeah, they, they, Ken Bates has had a lot of criticism over the years, but the one thing he was smart enough to realise was that the wrong owner who doesn't love Chelsea through and through might think, as we all know. Right, you know, look, it's the best piece of real estate in football, isn't it? It's, you know, it, it, it's it's slap bang in the middle of you know Fulham, Chelsea. It, it, it's it's an amazing piece of land, um, um, and he realised that an unscrupulous owner could just go right. Well, I, I'm going to cash in on this, and I'm going to move them to wherever you know to 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 you know the out you know out near the M25. So he so it's actually in the in the legal contract that they, that they can't they if if you were to move it you wouldn't be able to call them Chelsea Football Club and whenever billions of pounds come into things I, st- I start thinking there's a workaround to be perfectly honest with you Matt the uh, Kings Road Lakers yeah exactly this is what I mean yeah right well, well fine we'll move the club but we won't call them Chelsea we'll call them the Chelsea Football Club or something like that and well yeah it, it obviously happened with Wimbledon didn't it yeah but it, 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 and that's what he's trying to guard that's what Bates was trying to guard against when he Basically, handed the the ownership of the of, of the 125 yards by 75 yards or whatever it is mm. uh, to, uh, to to the fans. One final question, Matt: When do we see a resolution to to all of this? When will Chelsea have new owners? And of course, the the legal stuff with the UK government. How will it work now? Do we have a clearer yeah. picture on on where the finances will go? Yeah. So, so the letter they all got, the four groups got um, at the end of last week, 
did say that they hope to have everything done by the end of April. And they know that there is pressure because the club has only got so much money in the bank, um, you know, because Abramovich's assets have been frozen, they don't suddenly have access to his, you know, his riches. So that's what they said. Now, obviously they also said that, you know, in the next couple of weeks, they'll then be looking to, people have speculated April the 11th. I think it said in the next couple of weeks, they will look to, um, uh, 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 receive the sort of final proposals at the same time the four bidders get the chance to come in and we, we wrote about this on, on Saturday morning in the Times that the four bidders uh, get to come in they get to meet Thomas Tuchel and as, as one of the bid groups said to me you know they, they actually want to sit down with Thomas Tuchel and basically say are you sticking around you know, uh, you know they, they, they need to get a sense that he's committed and that he's going to be comfortable with a change of ownership and he's not going to go as has been speculated to Manchester United or somewhere else so they want to speak to him they want to sit down with Gravel Skyer that still remains a very interesting um, dynamic you know given that she's only ever worked for Abramovich uh, through throughout her entire career uh, and, and but yet she is the sort of the, the transfer business guru so the, so they've got a they've, there's a process of where the bidders get to look properly at the at the club but at the same time, they continue to look at the bidders. Once they do arrive at that decision, um, and, it, and it's it's Marina Gravelskaya, Eugene Tenenbaum, director, and Buck with the Rain Group, Bruce Buck, the chairman with the Rain Group, who will make a decision on who the preferred bid, bidder is. Then that bidder will be presented to the Treasury, because ultimately the Treasury has got to approve the sale. So you've got four at the moment. That will become one, I assume, by mid-April. And then they try and get the deal done. And if the government give the green light and they go, you know, let's say for argument's sake, it is the Bowley Group, and they go, yeah, they've got the funds. Uh, we're happy with it. They, they meet all the owners and directors. Obviously, the Premier League, you've got to be part of this process as well. Yeah, we're happy with Todd Bowley. Yeah, we're happy with Hans-Jörg Viss. Yeah, we're happy with Jonathan Goldstein. Yeah, they can be the new owners of the club. And then, and then I think after that, as Richard Masters, the Premier League chief executive, said a few weeks ago, it can then be done in about 10 days. Okay, Matt, thank you very much for the update. We will try and keep all of the Chelsea fans uh, posted on that one. Appreciate it. Now, very quickly before we go on the game podcast, still time to react to Italy and Italy in particular going out of the World Cup. The second World Cup in a row they will miss. They are, of course, the European champions, no less, beating England in a final at Wembley. Roberto Mancini is their manager, and there are reports in the country this morning that he will stay in charge of Italy. He has signed a contract, the former interim Manchester City boss, until the 2026 World Cup. That's not news. He did that a while ago. Um, but it, but it, there is some insecurity, some fragility, of course, if you're the Italy boss and you don't reach a World Cup. So my question really is, should Manchester United or Newcastle United be interested in, in poaching Mancini this week? Be cutthroat, go for it. Try and steal him out of the job when he's at his weakest. Tom Roddy, what do you think? Hugh, what are you doing? You're poking. You're just poking your fellow Man United fans, aren't you? This this isn't that would not go down well, surely. Why? Why? 
because of his history. That's why. As a winner, so. yeah, maybe. I mean, we hate winners, don't we, in Man United? <laughs> but you say that, but um, he did a fantastic job at City. Uh, probably an under underappreciated job now because of Guardiola coming in and this era um, of dominance. So it's, it's slightly underappreciated now. But, you know, what we have learned over the last few years at Man United is that the guy who stands in the dugout isn't the person whose sole responsibility to solve all these issues. He's not the big problem, is he? We know that now over the, over the years. So why bring in someone who's going to be divisive from the start? Um, Newcastle is a, is a more interesting point, um, but not now, no. Um, Eddie Howe is the right man for the for the football side right now I mean I'm not sure about either of those um, and it was put to me that I wasn't a proper Manchester United fan for tweeting that Manchester United should go for Roberto Mancini as soon as Italy had lost that game to North Macedonia and that's a great story in itself but maybe you um, could do a poll uh, yeah, I was. Uh, listen, they told me I'm not a proper Manchester United fan, and I said, "Look, if it if it was Guardiola in ten years' time, are you telling me that you wouldn't want him to to manage Manchester United?" And some Manchester United fans said, "No, never," because he's coached Manchester City. And I said, well, "What about Jurgen Klopp? Are you telling me that you wouldn't want Jurgen Klopp one day to coach Manchester United if he one day leaves Liverpool?" And they said, "No, absolutely not," because of a loyalty to Manchester United. They said, and I said, "I'm loyal to Manchester United. I want them to win." I want them to have the best players. I want them to have the best manager. And that is loyalty to me. Maybe I'm just a different type of football fan. Um, and I thought that was that was harsh. So I, am I Am I, Am I? I wrong to say that, Tony? Well, this co comes from a conversation with Jack Charlton, Republic of Ireland, of when he became a manager after coaching at Sheffield Wednesday, Newcastle. And he said to me, one day in your career, it becomes quite evident you're a better international manager and what you like about football and what you can give to football is suited to being an international manager. And I think there's very few examples of managers that go to international football, then go back and are successful. I think they get caught in the... The world of football is a daily thing, 24 hours every day. Now, that doesn't mean that international football is not demanding. I just think that Mancini now is at the place best suited for him to be successful as an international manager. Going back to club football, I think it's a very difficult thing to do. You're talking about Guardiola and, and Pet, um, Klopp and, you know, would you like... Of course you would like a manager of that calibre. But I do think the next move, if you said Guardiola, will be the international football and not club football. I get what you're saying, Tony, but let's think about this. Sit in the hot seat of Manchester United's chief executive here. You're talking to Eric Ten Hag. You're talking to Mauricio Pochettino. Yeah. It might be Luis Enrique. It might be Julian Lopetegui. Is Mancini, isn't Mancini a better manager than all of them? No, I think he's best suited now to international football. Oh, okay. And that's where he's doing his best job, unless they had success last summer. I just think it, sometimes football will go past you. It evolves, and for you as a, a coach or a manager, there is a time when you have to go, this is now the best place for me to be is international football and not back to a club. Uh, so I, I don't know. On the basis of, of his past affiliation with Manchester City, then would that rule him out? Say he'd never coached Italy and he'd never been in club, he'd never been in international football. 
would you say still it would be impossible for him to coach Manchester I, United? I, yeah, I, I don't like that idea at this stage of his career. He's been around a long time and, okay. and coached at different levels and were for a lot of different clubs. So I think he's now where he should be. And go, You try and give me an example of I wanna, someone. I'm going to give you an example. Who? Do you remember a certain Sir Matt Busby, ex-Manchester City and Liverpool player, who went to Manchester United and, as far as I know, did quite well and is a bit of a legend in those parts. That's all I'm going to say, all right? Yeah. So if you're going to bring glory so to the club... you've gone back to 1966. Listen, yes. if you're going to bring... If you're, <laughs> Can you get a little bit closer to the, if, where we are now? If you yeah. are going to bring glory to a football club and it works... Listen, if Rafa Benitez won every single game and got Everton to the Champions League, they wouldn't care that he used to manage Liverpool. Had he brought them that great success, we know how it went, but had it gone very differently, it would have all been forgotten. It's all about winning games. As far as football fans are concerned, you bring them what they want and they will adore you obviously the initial part is going to be very difficult but you can win them over a bit like you were talking about Gareth Bale a little bit earlier on does he fit into the category that they're looking at at the moment which Pochettino Ten Hag Lopetegui no he's better he's a better coach he's a better coach he has won three league titles in Italy. He's won four Coppa Italias. He's won a Premier League title. He has just won the European Championship with Italy. He is a level above the coaches that well, they are about to go appoint. Go back to Josie then. No yeah, answer here. I mean, he's got, if you want to list what he's done, but they went to but let's be clear. That, that was almost, very strange. You, the there was is, a silence. Tony, <laughs> Tony's almost backed me up there, though, because how? how you have you've backed me up because Jose Mourinho was an arch rival while he was at Chelsea of Manchester United, and they still appointed him. Why? Because he's a winner. The fans, by the way, hated him, and you all know I didn't want him to be Manchester United's manager when he was appointed, and I never thought it would work. Had he won the league, had he won the Champions League, I, don't, I mean, this would be a Jose. Mourinho Stan account. Well, he I'd won two seeing, trophies. I'd be yeah. seeing, I know, but he didn't win what Manchester United. Manchester United, there are levels, aren't there? Manchester, you don't take the Manchester United job to win a League Cup and win the Europa League. You want to win the FA Cup, you want to win the Champions League, you want to win the Premier League. But if he had, he'd still be there and he'd be a Man United legend. You know, had he brought the results, had he brought the success, all would have been forgotten. That is all I'm going to say. Tom Clark, what do you think? Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed all of that. And yeah, definitely <laughs> going to do a reader poll on it just to see what the uh, Times readers think. I started off thinking, same as Tom Roddy, you can't bring in Roberto Mancini. It's all about projection. It's all about um, the optics for Manchester United. And then actually, I'm starting to think that maybe it'd be the perfect thing to get an ex-Manchester City manager in because it would finally kind of get rid of all the kind of, you know, furore around this is Manchester United, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, they're just a football team that need a good manager. End of discussion. So why not get him in and then after he's had a few years clearing out the dead wood, get Steven Gerrard in afterwards. Happy days. Or Benitez. As long as they win, Tony. As long as they win. All right, that's the requisite. You need to win titles. Or Mark Hughes, then. You've got both. <laughs> Ex-Man City manager, legend of United, Bradford to Old Trafford. This, is what, this is what we're talking about. Um, listen, gentlemen, been a pleasure, as always, to be with you on the Game Podcast. Thank you, Tom Roddy, Tony Cascarino, and Tom Clark, and to all of you for listening as well. And remember, you can subscribe to the Game Podcast and to the Times and the Sunday Times as well. You can enjoy brighter insights on politics, business and much more, including sport. For just one pound, you'll get three months of everything. So you can subscribe at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you on Thursday. As you're listening to me, 
Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 